I'm reading from God's Word, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and he said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to that passage of Scripture uh, that Kathy read for us this morning. Isaiah chapter 6 and 1 to 8. As you turn there, let me ask you the question. What do you think about when you hear the word holy? Maybe you think about your church, its lovely stained glass windows, all the brass fittings, the baptismal font, etc, etc. Maybe you think about the procession that happens at major events. On the 28th of May, I had the privilege of attending the consecration and installation of the new Archbishop of Sydney. Friends, that was a sight to behold. Maybe that speaks to you of holiness. Maybe you have a mental picture in your mind of some monk sitting in seclusion somewhere in the Himalayas, meditating, or Pope, or the Pope in all his regalia. Maybe you think of Mother, Mother Teresa when you hear the word holy. Friends, when I think of the word holy, I think of something that is morally perfect and pure. This morning, as we consider the passage before us, I hope by the end of our time together that we may understand this word and have a look at how we respond to seeing God's holiness as we consider how Isaiah responded to seeing it. Right at the beginning of the chapter, we are told that Isaiah's vision happened during the year that King Uzziah died. It is good to note that Uzziah had been in office for 52 years. Whilst he was not a perfect king, he was one of the better kings of Judah. Uzziah came to power at the ripe old age 
of 16. Now for us to get an overview of what was going on here, we need to remember that when judges ruled the people, way back in the times of the judges and 1 Samuel, the people looked around and saw other nations with kings and they wanted to be like other nations. So they asked Samuel, God's envoy, the prophet at the time for a king. Samuel at the time was very disappointed and sought God's counsel on the matter. God told Samuel that the people were not rejecting his leadership, but was rejecting his, God's leadership over the people. And God told Samuel to give them a king. Well, we learn that Saul was chosen as the first king of Israel. This was during the time of what is known as the United Kingdom. Following Saul was David and then Solomon. At the end of Solomon's life, the king or the kingdom split into two. Solomon's two sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, were installed to rule the people. Rehoboam to rule Judah and Jeroboam to rule Israel. Uzziah was the 10th king of Judah. We are told that his rule was, in comparison to most other kings, it was good. So when we get to Isaiah 6, Uzziah had been king for 52 years. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we are told about some of his achievements. We are told in verse 2 that his father, Amaziah, rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah. In verse 4, we are told that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We are told that he had a godly father and that he sought the Lord during the days of Zechariah, who was the king of Israel. Verse 5 tells us that while ever he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He was a hands-on person. He led his people into battle against their enemies. He didn't send them, he led them. We are told that because of all that he did, he became famous. He built cisterns in the desert and acquired great wealth. He provided employment for his people. He owned vineyards and grazing lands. He built military hardware. But what brought about Uzziah's downfall? What was it that brought him undone? Well, we are told that he became prideful. And because of his pride, he became unfaithful in his walk with God. Effectively, he lost his way. Isn't that what happens in most situations? After a period of time, after a period of God's blessing, we become prideful. We become comfortable in what we have and what we've obtained as if it comes to us from our own hands. We boast about our achievements as if they were the things of our making. Friends, can I say at this point, we need to take stock. We need to be careful that we don't become like Uzziah. We need to be careful that we don't become proud. An example of Uzziah's pride came at the end of his life. 
where he sought to assume the, res the responsibility or the role of a priest. And we were told that he burnt incense on the altar, something that was afforded only to the priests and not to kings. And when 80 priests approached him about this, he became exceedingly angry. And we were told he was enraged. It was during this fit of rage that he became leprous. We are told that he remained leprous until the day he died. So while he was faithful in some things and sought the Lord's guidance in others, it was during these times that God prospered him and the people. The country under his leadership experienced great prosperity. Friends, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because for 52 years, Uzziah brought about a sense of stability to the people. Life in Jerusalem was good. Now that the king had died, people feared an uncertain future. Some have intimated that upon hearing of Uzziah's death, Isaiah goes to the temple to be consoled. R.C. Sproul says that we are not told the exact timing of, and the place of Uzziah's vision. We're only told that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Did he die before Isaiah had his vision? Or was it after? Well, we're not told. The reading of the text could very well be that Isaiah visited the temple to be consoled by God. If this was the case, he, was, he, wasn't, uh, he probably wasn't the only one there. He wasn't there alone, as this was an event of national significance, the death of the king. As he entered the temple, as he has this vision, note what he sees. He saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. He saw the train of his robe fill the temple. Friends, in a time of uncertainty, God reveals himself to Isaiah in a vision. God, in revealing himself to Isaiah, reminded Isaiah and the people that he was their king, that he was their provider, that he was their sustainer. God had always been the king, right from the very beginning of time. As Isaiah enters the temple, he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. What a sight that must have been. Some years ago, I was able to uh, watch a video of the Queen's um, installation and it happened on the, on the 2nd of June, 1953. Queen Elizabeth was installed as the fourth monarch of the Windsor dynasty. I can remember seeing footage of when Queen Elizabeth was crowned Queen of England. And what a sight it was. It was a time of pomp and ceremony. It had all the hallmarks of what a coronation should be. The great procession and the ornate attire of all the clergy. Her dress was marvellous. And while the train didn't fill any temple, her consecration was a sight to behold. Her train needed six women to help 
as she made her way into Westminster Abbey. Here in Isaiah's vision, he sees the Lord exalted, lifted up, and his train filled the temple. What a sight that would have been. That is not all he saw. Note what else he saw. He saw seraphim, each one having six wings. Now note that we are not told how many there was. Some have suggested that there were two. Now, I don't know how many there were, but it would have been glorious. Calvin says that while the number of angels is not mentioned, he himself believes that there were two. He, however, is not close to other suggestions that there may have been more. What was it about these creatures? Well, they each had six wings. With two, we are told they covered their face or their eyes. With two, they covered their feet and with two, they flew. Why did they cover their eyes? Well, some have suggested that the brightness or the glory of the Lord was unbearable to look upon. Others have suggested that it was a result of their humble dispensation, a little bit like Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and the burning of the bush, and when Moses is summoned up to the Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, according to some, these seraphims took on a dispensation before a holy and righteous God that displayed a sense of humility. You know, folks, it matters not why they covered their face. It may have well been because of their humble dispensation. It may have well been because of the brightness of his presence. Whatever their reason, they did it in reverence of the Almighty. Isaiah goes on and gives us more information about these seraphims. Isaiah says, with two they covered their feet. Why? Well, we don't know the significance of the feet covering. But this is what Isaiah saw. With the last two, they flew around, which some have suggested that it speaks of service. Again, the scriptures are unclear. What else do we know about what Isaiah saw? Well, Matthew Henry cites two passages of scripture, which tells us that this was not just a theophany, a situation where God uh, reveals himself through different things. Example of Moses in the burning bush. It wasn't a theophany, but it was a Christophany, meaning that it was not just any Lord. It wasn't just any deity. It wasn't just any person sitting on the throne. It was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The two passages that Matthew Henry cites are John chapter 12, verse 41, which says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus. Glory. He saw, sorry, Isaiah saw, he saw Jesus. Glory and spoke about him. Then again in John chapter 17, verse 5, which says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Friends, what Isaiah saw that day 
was Jesus sitting on his throne. He was arrayed in all his splendor. He had a host of angelic beings flying around about him. What, but what did he hear? Not only did he see things happening, but he also heard things that were emanating around the throne. Holy, not once but three times. The word holy comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, which means separate, set aside, sacred. What Isaiah saw and heard was a worship session where seraphims were exclaiming the holiness of God, not once but three times. You know, when you read or when you when you read the scriptures and we see something that is repeated three times, we better sit up and take notice. It was the repeating of the word holy that was important. The one who sat upon the throne was being worshipped by these seraphims with the loud array of holiness, holy to the Lord God. There was no one holier than the person who Isaiah saw. He was high and lifted up, indicating that he was the supreme ruler of all time from the beginning and he will continue to be until the end. As he continued to gaze at the Lord, note what happens next. And I quote, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Friends, whilst there was smoke there, there was no smoke and mirrors here, folks. No smoke machines, no trickery going on. Isaiah saw and felt the presence of God as he gazed on the purity of the Lord God Almighty. Note what happens when he's confronted with the holiness of God. At that, Isaiah cried out, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The holiness of God had caused the sinful of Isaiah to manifest itself. Woe to me, I am ruined. In the presence of a righteous and holy God, we stand condemned. We are sinners. The best of our righteousness is of filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6 tells us. Every person to have ever lived as a sinful nature. Here Isaiah is confronted with his own sinfulness because of sin, the purity and the holiness of the Lord. When we realize our own sinfulness, we realize that we are ruined. We are without hope in the world. Paul, in writing to the believers at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 encourages them to remember that at that time, what time was he talking about? The time when they were not a part of God's family. You were separated, he says, from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope in the world, he says. There is nothing that we or anyone else can do to bring about a righteous, a right standing before a righteous and holy God. Without Christ, we are hopeless. We are ruined. We are sinful. We are unrighteous. Note what happens next, verse 6. Then one of the seraphims flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth. 
and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Note Isaiah's confession. I am a man of unclean lips. The part of his life that he confessed, that part that needed dealing with, is now being dealt with. The live coal was placed not on his head, that he did something wrong, not on his feet, that he moved in circles where he shouldn't have been. No, it touched his mouth, the very sin he was doing and confessed, God dealt with. Friends, I love John 1, 9. It's one of my favourite verses of scripture. And it's written for the believer, by the way. It's not written for everyone. And it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We as believers should never tire of confessing our sins. We should be doing it on a constant basis. So note what happens next. Isaiah has a vision. At that vision, he sin surfaces. He confesses his sin. God then deals with that sin and pronounces him cleansed. How does Isaiah respond to knowing that his sins have been purged and forgiven? Well, let's read on. It says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And friends, this is where the crux, this is where the, where the uh, crux meets the road. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? This is where the rubber meets the road. You know, folks, I have now served with BCA for the past 16 years. And over that time, God has raised up some wonderful people to serve. BCA has a number of vacant positions, and I have no doubt they will be filled. I believe that God is asking the same question today as he did of Isaiah back some nearly 3,000 years ago. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Maybe, just maybe, God is calling you to go for him and serve him by telling others about Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers his people. The big question is, Will you be that person? I want to close this morning by asking the question, has God called you to serve in the life of your church? Maybe he's not calling you to serve in some unique part of our country. Maybe he's not calling you to serve overseas, but maybe he is, he is not calling you. Maybe he's not calling you to be a pastor of a church or even a children's worker. I believe that everyone I believe that everyone that God calls to himself and gives them salvation, he calls with the purpose of them serving him. The big question is, who will go for God? Who can he send? My question is, will it be you? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the field is white and ready for harvest. And Father, that you are raising up leaders around this country of ours. And we pray, Lord, that uh, people will be willing, Father, to go, to proclaim the gospel, to share God's love with other people, not only, Father, in remote and isolated locations around the country, but even in their own local context. Father, I pray for our brethren, at Richmond Anglican Church. I ask, Lord, that you will encourage them 
that they might make themselves available to serve, just as Isaiah did. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you might bless them as a congregation, as they continue to, to, to do mission in their space. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.